Let me also, as the, we begin the lesson this morning, express my personal appreciation to Brother Jeff, who so ably and capably filled in last Lord's Day morning as he delivered the lesson. I've already been able to tell from the comments, the other statements that were made, what, fine, what a fine lesson that it was. And I, too, am very appreciative of the Pippin congregation having men who are both capable and very willing to employ their talents in ways very, very much like that. It is good to be back with you today. I again appreciate the prayers and thoughts that you have expressed on behalf of the meeting at Bloomington Springs. It seems the brethren were very receptive and very encouraged by the lessons that were shared. And certainly Denise and the girls and I were also encouraged by their uh, faithfulness in terms of the meeting. And we're very happy to be back to our church home here as well. The lesson, as you may have noted, that is advertised in the bulletin as well as in the wall here to my left has to do with one of the parables uttered by our Savior in the 13th chapter of Matthew. As Lucas read that just a few moments earlier, I'd like to ask that we give it a bit more attention during the course of our study today, seeking to appreciate a bit more about the nature of the mustard seed and what it was that Jesus taught very carefully and very specifically in the context of that parable. In fact, some introductory thoughts might well be along the following line. Isn't it true that our Savior was a master at being able to teach in memorable but yet simple ways? There are individuals today who are very learned and very scholarly, but by some way they do not have the incredible skill to share it in simple ways that all of us can understand. That certainly couldn't be said of Jesus. He was able to take some of the most simple and the most observable ideas and from them teach lessons that truly were profound. And so it was, as we see, related for us in Matthew the 13th chapter. In fact, as you may well have noted in your study or reading of that chapter, it is sometimes called the parable chapter of the Bible because there are seven parables related in that one chapter. More parables than in any other single chapter in all of the book of God. I've listed them for you in order, but as one notices the parable of the sower of the seed, and the parable of the tares, and that of the mustard seed, and that of the leaven, and the parable of the treasure hid in a field, and the parable of the pearl of great price, and finally, the parable of the net. Our Lord, in fact, on that occasion related these, and the lessons were dramatic, the lessons were memorable, and the lessons were that which was truly unforgettable. Quite often, we give more attention to the first two parables of the chapter, the sower of the seed as well as the tares. This morning, we will look at the mustard seed parable, the third one related in that chapter, and notice that the lesson also is great indeed and should be of great benefit to you and me still today. As we give some attention to that, might I ask us to notice that as Jesus related these parables in Matthew the 13th chapter, it is entirely fair to say that the Lord, at least based on what preceded it in chapter 12, had directly before him some mighty, mighty lessons that needed to be learned. In fact, did you notice with me, the Lord taught very carefully, very analytically, and very logically in chapter 12. He even directly rebuked those that were in need of being rebuked. When the Pharisees in Matthew 12 came to Jesus and said, Master, we seek a sign from thee. Jesus, without hesitation and without apology, said, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. 
That, of course, helped them to appreciate the fact their question was inappropriate. Their desire to see a sign as a proof of Jesus being the Messiah was an unfounded one, and they ought not desire to see any such. The common people came to see in Jesus a marvelous degree of capability. They seemed to resonate with his lesson. They saw him rebuke the teachers. They saw his life being exactly a mimic of what he taught. He didn't say one thing and do something else. Isn't it still that way today that when you and I perceive a teacher to live differently than the way he teaches, we have little respect for what he says. We have very little appreciation for the true and required nature of what he's teaching. Thus, when Jesus preached and practiced what he preached, the common people heard him gladly. They came to be close followers of him in many ways. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, let's notice how this chapter opens. For it says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. We immediately noticed that here was a throng of people, a great multitude anxious and interested in what Jesus had to say. In fact, the crowd was so great that Jesus stepped into a little boat, went a small distance from shore, and he sat down, and the crowd stood on the shore and listened as he related these parables. If we can visualize or imagine that setting, it might give us an added appreciation for the nature of the parables that the Lord taught. Isn't it interesting then that one of the first things we learn, both in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, is this. The Lord taught something. Doctrine was important then, and it remains important now. The sadness of the fact that some individuals seem to think that the explicit character of doctrine is less important than how one feels, or that the explicit character of revealed truth is less important than the way it makes a person feel, that is an incorrect viewpoint. Jesus, in fact, taught specifically, directly, and carefully the revealed will of heaven. And today that still must be the basis for our activity and the basis if we desire to be properly appreciated by the God of heaven. If we are viewed by him as faithful children, if we are looked upon by him as those worthy of being blessed by the character of his Son, thus doctrine is vital. It cannot, in fact, be superseded by any degree of emotion or any degree of feeling. Thus, when Jesus taught these parables, notice what he taught. The very first one in that chapter was the sower of the seed. As easily imaginable as that is, a sower went forth to sow. Some seed fell, of course, upon the wayside, some in stony ground, some in thorny places, and finally some in good fertile soil. Jesus, of course, taught a rather notable parable and a very grand set of lessons by virtue of that. Might I ask you to notice simply some comments about it. The parable of the sower, among other things, teaches this. Some seed among the wayside soil, some seed in thorny places, some in stony ground. The majority of the seed did not bring forth lasting good fruit, did it? 
In fact, relatively speaking, only a small portion of the seed landed in soil such that not only did it begin to grow, but it persisted and ultimately brought forth much. We see then that it's not enough merely to start growing. One must appreciate the need to persevere, even in the face of obstacles, even in the face of difficulties and oppressions. Perseverance is vital, isn't it? For only that plant that perseveres throughout the growing season will bring forth the full harvest that the farmer would wish. Well, Jesus said similarly in that parable of the sower of the seed, similarly, even though the one in stony ground began to grow, notice it had not much earth, and so in the heat of the day it was scorched and proceeded to wither and die. What about those that fell among thorns? Here they too began to grow, but the thorns also grew and choked the word, and that choking took place by the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world, Luke's version of this same parable tells us. Thus we must ever be on guard to the character of the fact that when the seed is sown relatively little, may fall into good and honest hearts and bring forth persistently and with perseverance much fruit unto God. That emphasizes to you and me how important it is not just to be baptized, but to live faithfully throughout life with earnestness and the foundation of the Word of God so that we can be reckoned among those who in fact are the good and honest soil. But then notice the parable that followed that one. It too has a thrust in it that couldn't have helped but make those that heard think seriously about this message. The parable of the tares. Here was a man that went forth and sowed good wheat seed in his field. However, while men slept, at night an enemy came and sowed tares amongst the wheat. The servants came to recognize eventually what had happened and when they brought that information to, in fact, the owner or the householder, he said, let them alone for now. Let them both grow into the harvest. Then we shall separate them. We'll gather together one, namely the wheat, into the barn, but we'll gather together the tares and burn them. We know, of course, that teaches another set of grand lessons, among which is this. Good and evil will persist in this life all the way until the time Jesus returns. We have no hope of appreciating a day when all evil will have been vanquished from this earth. For Jesus said here, both are going to remain until the time of the harvest. Now those two parables put together seemingly may have had a very negative thrust to them. So Jesus, are you teaching that when the seed is sown, relatively few will hear it, take it into a good and honest heart, and live with persistence until death? Jesus, are you saying that here upon earth, though your people, the church, exists, and though the church has every right to be powerful and wonderful, and so it is, is it still the case, though, that there will be persistent tares, enemies, of course, under the working of the devil himself, who will cause problems and troubles and difficulties? The answer to both questions is yes. Jesus said so in both interpretations. I might submit to you at the very bottom of that screen that perhaps brings us to this point. Those who heard these two parables may thus have been of an impression, well then ought we to become the followers of you, Jesus? 
If it's the case, few are going to be faithful. Few are going to persist until the end. Few, in fact, are going to be fully recognizing of the fact that the tares will coexist with the wheat. Should we then bother to be your follower at all? It sounds like the cards, if you please, are stacked against us. And so it is, the parable of the mustard seed is up next. What did the Lord teach in this parable? And what wonderful, positive lesson should they have understood then? And can you and I still understand now? I have the fact before you of what the earthly story is. Let us never forget, of course, that a parable is nothing more than an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Some well-known, well-understood physical event that is mirrored with a spiritual or heavenly meaning. Again, in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 12, or Matthew chapter 13, rather, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and hid, or sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. We find directly stated on this occasion about a man who went and sowed a single mustard seed in his soil or in his field. Now notice it's not that he cast a whole handful of seed. It's not that he sowed any but one. There was one seed that was sown. But as you notice the way in which that is presented the King James translation reads it this way, is like to a grain of mustard seed. That again in the Greek refers to a single seed being sown. As that single seed is sown, verse 32 then points us in this direction, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. That story would have been well known to any person living in the Palestinian area. After all, as you can see in some of the notes that I've listed, the mustard plant and the mustard seed was a well-known herb in that day and time, and it still is so for us. We can go and purchase mustard in any of the particular grocery stores in this area. We can even purchase quite often, in addition to the seeds, the actual mustard plants themselves. Notice that it was even more common in that area and day. But maybe a second note. Jesus on this occasion did notice that the mustard seed is small. If you've ever held a hand of uh, mustard seeds in your hand, often they're used in cooking. You open the bottle and you pour them out and you can almost pour out a whole bottle seemingly and hold very, very many of them. In terms of size, they're exceedingly small. So much so that roughly 13 to 14 of them placed side by side will only measure about an inch. They're tiny. Jesus made reference to that fact in this very verse, didn't he? He said in verse 32, the least of all seeds. That was a proverbial Jewish expression. When a Jew wished to refer to how small something was, they often would say, well, just like the leastness or the smallness of a mustard seed, that entity or that concept was a small one. Jesus wasn't precisely affirming that the mustard seed is literally the absolute smallest of all the plants. 
But in fact, it was a proverbial Jewish expression. And you and I, even today, sometimes use expressions like that still, don't we? When we want to refer to how large something is, well, that entity or that is as big as a house. Well, that's not to say that there aren't houses larger than that one. It's just to affirm, and everyone knows the way the statement is used, it means the largeness of it or the greatness of its size. So too here, though the seed is exceedingly small that the man planted in the soil, notice what became of it. When it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs. That mustard plant, that mustard seed, I should say, when the conditions are proper and when it's right, it will grow and often grow rather quickly and truly become a sizable bush or shrub, so much so that birds can rest upon it and perhaps even make nests in it. The interesting feature of that parable leads us to ask, if that's the physical story, what is the heavenly meaning? What lesson was Jesus attempting to teach and what lesson should you, should you and I receive from it today? Might I submit that the heavenly meaning begins at the very outset of verse 31. Jesus again said, The kingdom of heaven is like... That was a familiar way Jesus often began his parables. The kingdom of heaven is like... What is the kingdom of heaven? In Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, the Lord on that occasion helped us identify the kingdom as the church, the marvelous and wonderful kingdom that would at one point come into existence would in fact be that kingdom of God, would be the church. Jesus makes a reference to the work of God as represented in the beautiful church according to this parable of the mustard seed. What does it mean then when Jesus referred to the fact the man planted a single seed? That helps us appreciate, friend, that there is but one church. There weren't multiplicities of seeds planted. It's not that he sowed a handful of seed. There was but one. And every plant which my heavenly Father planteth not, the Lord said, shall be rooted up. Matthew 15, verse 13. Notice that only the seed planted by the sower, by this man that in fact planted the one grain of mustard seed, that's the only plant that God recognizes spiritually. It's the only entity, the only organization to be seen in it. Didn't Paul affirm in Ephesians 4 verse 4, there is one body? And three chapters previous to that in Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him, namely Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Paul then defined for us the fact then that the church is the body, and he said there's one of them. That lovely kingdom then to which this text refers in Matthew 13 helps us still see that God is not the author of confusion. He is not the author of the multiplicity of bodies, all of which seem to refer to God. But they behave differently. They teach differently. They worship differently. That is not, you see, of heaven. One seed was planted. But we notice that this seed was not to remain small. Notice it again says, When it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs. It may well have been that for a Jew, the thought of the smallness of the kingdom of heaven would have been a difficult thing. 
I suspect, though, upon reflection, they might have thought about their own history. In fact, could you and I not imagine? How did Israel begin? That nation of Israel of which we read in the Old Testament. In Genesis 46, roughly 100 people went into Egypt. When they came out, how many were there? There were well over 600,000 fighting men alone. It'd be easy to appreciate the total number of them would have at least been two and a half to three million. Notice, what did God do in seemingly a short period of time? He took a small group and turned it by his blessings into a vast number. We have something similar set before us here. A single seed would, of course, grow by virtue in the parable, you see, and become something great, something far larger than the initial seed itself. When you and I then put these ideas together, where do they lead us? If the kingdom represents the church, did the church begin with smallness? Did it begin small? As we turn to the book of Acts and find the first days of the church, I would ask you to remember with me what it was that stated about the church. Can we not remember that in fact the church did begin so small that one might have been tempted to wonder, will this church persist? Will it thrive and will it even continue at all? The answer, of course, is an overwhelming yes. As we turn to Acts, the second chapter, on that very first day in which the church began, we find that there amongst the Jews that were gathered to celebrate Pentecost, approximately 3,000 of them responded in faith to what Peter and the others had proclaimed that day. Notice in verse 41, and they that gladly received his word were baptized, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Prior to that time, there had been 12, the apostles. That's a very small beginning, isn't it? 12 people amongst the vastness of the number upon earth, and yet on that day, 3,000 roughly were added. That's explosive growth, isn't it? However, two chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, verse number 4, we notice that by that time the number had grown to about 5,000. 2,000 more had already been added. The greatness to be seen in that number helps us appreciate that we're beginning to see the growth of the mustard seed. Though it was planted with such smallness, the church grew mightily and it prevailed. Though it began little, it did not remain so. Those Christians who by faith placed their confidence and trust in God and who lived the life of Christ were examples to those about them. And they, in fact, preached and taught the word everywhere they went, Acts 8, verse 4. And that church grew mightily and prevailed, Acts 12, verse 24, as well as Acts 19, verse 20. To say all of that is to say that the church was explosive in its growth, and that is what the Lord had prophesied. That's what he had stated in the parable of the mustard seed. I might point out to each of us, though, that as we contemplate that growth of the church, that again was a mighty thing indeed. We understand today that if we had the idea to start some organization here in Putnam County, 50 years from now, there might not be more than 50 or 100 members. Maybe 200 years from now, it would already be dead and gone. This movement that the Lord prophesied of in Matthew 13 was not a movement that was going to die out. 
It was a movement that would continue and it would remain. It's true, it had some tumultuous times in the area of the Middle Ages. But notice today how it has blossomed again. How you and I are the beneficiaries today of a faithful recognition of the church and an appreciation of all that it stands for. The realization of this parable of the mustard seed maybe brings us to Colossians 1.23 when on that occasion the inspired apostle even said, it's been preached to every creature under heaven. That's how greatly the church had grown. Paul in his missionary journeys had proclaimed the truth far and near. He had taken it near and wide. And in that recognition, maybe that brings us to the last set of questions for our lesson this morning. If the mustard seed represented the church and its great growth, we've seen that came to pass. Maybe that also indicates something else. The church, you see, is composed of individuals, just like you and just like me. The church is not going to grow explosively and be strong unless its members are strong and grow as well. Maybe that begs to ask the following question. If God could take a ragtag group of 12 people, 12 apostles, who later in Acts 4 verse 13 were called ignorant and unlearned men, they didn't have doctoral degrees. They weren't in fact notable individuals recognized near and far as representatives of the entire world and even of the local Palestine area. They were humble fishermen. Others of them were in fact of other trades. But yet the Lord took them and used them to blazon the trail throughout the world of the gospel. Just like the mustard seed had pointed out. If God could take those people and do that with them, can he not take your faith and mine and cause it to bloom and blossom and become a great and vast thing? Yes, he can, and that's in fact what he wants to do. He wants your faith and mine to be a towering citadel of strength, so much so that as it were, great things can rest upon the branches thereof. For in fact, it's not weak, and it's not tiny, and it's not small. The greatness of our faith is perhaps seen by contrast to even the book of Matthew. Several times in the Gospel of Matthew, references are made to those who had little faith. It stands to reason, doesn't it? And in fact, it's self-evident. None of us would want by God to be called a person of little faith. We want to have great faith, worthy faith, and notable faith because that's what the Lord teaches of us. But yet, how many times did Jesus confront those who had little faith? I've listed for you some passages in Matthew 6, verse 30. On that occasion, he said, O ye of little faith. And the context had to do with these who were concerned about the things of regular life. Notice there he said, the grass that today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven. Won't God take care of you, O ye of little faith? When we allow the materialistic concerns of the day to come between us and a full faith in God, we are so concerned and worried about how God will take care of or if he will take care of our physical needs in life, we exemplify the fact we have little faith. God said, I'll promise you this. If you put me first, I'll make sure all of those things are taken care of. 
your shelter, your raiment, your clothing, your food. You can have my word on it. I will take care of that if you will put me first. It thus exemplifies the fact you and I have little faith if we are solely concerned with and prompted by the problems of making sure that these other physical needs are met. That would mean we're of little faith. Later in Matthew 14, verse number 31 of that chapter, there we find Peter in a very interesting situation. He had begun to walk on water, but when he began to take notice of the boisterous waves about him and began to sink, Jesus said, Peter, oh ye of little faith. Notice again, Peter took his eyes off the Savior. As long as he was fixed on Jesus and placed his complete trust and confidence in him, he was able to walk on water defying the law of gravity. However, when he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink. Let me submit to all of us that when we take our eyes off Jesus, it's inevitable we're going to sink. There is no other framework for salvation, no other source of strength, no other great matter for the mustard seed to become. Perhaps one other final observation found in Matthew 16, verse 8. One more time, O ye of little faith. Might we then recognize we need not to be those of little faith. We need to grow just like the mustard seed. We need to become towering bulwarks of strength, recognized individuals who have not a weak faith, but one that is strong, one that is mighty. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And we are admonished to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3, 18. Finally, we're admonished in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, to ever appreciate that we should desire the sincere milk of the word, that we may grow thereby. That mustard seed grew greatly and mightily, and your faith and mine can do the same. Perhaps as we draw near the close of the lesson this morning, the question could then come to all of us. Just as surely as the mustard seed, the single seed became so large, so large that even birds could rest in it and upon it, how large is your faith and how large is mine? Are you availing yourself of the opportunities afforded by the church for your faith to grow? What about the presence at the various Bible study times? And do you pray as you should? Do each of us involve ourselves in all of that like we ought to if the interest truly is to grow? Those are very personal and noteworthy questions, aren't they? You and I only have the individual answers to them. If you find yourself today weak in faith, not because God hasn't granted you the opportunity to grow, for He has, but you have failed to avail yourself of the opportunities He's given you. Today it may be that you need to make a public statement before others of the fact that you have been derelict in your duties. You have not been responsible in the talents and blessings God has given you. Today, if we could be of assistance to you in praying for your rededication, that those failures of the past will be in the past and not be problems that plague you now, we'd be happy to pray for you and with you. If maybe you are not a child of God at all, you have never obeyed the Lord initially, Understand that you need to become a Christian if you are to have any hope of salvation. For in fact, neither is there salvation in any other.
For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. To quote Acts 4 verse 12. Today, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, the Messiah sent from heaven. Repent of your sins, recognizing that they are what in fact needed or caused Christ to come. Confess his wonderful name as your Savior and then be baptized. That is, immersed in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. Today, if we could be of assistance to you in either one of those ways, then let the parable of the mustard seed prompt you to begin that area of growth so that the church today can continue to be the bush and tree that the world is able to see and the weaknesses of life can be overcome by the marvelous shadow of that mustard seed tree. If we could be of help to you today, won't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.